and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. From the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. It's a brave man who has read that passage. Father, as we come to this passage, we come to a new book, a new testament. Lord, speak to us. Show us the glories that are here, hidden in the midst of all these names, how awesome to see that grace is pouring out of them, that the fullness of time has come, that the Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, has entered history. Yes, give us eyes that see and ears that hear, and give this mouth and scratchy throat the ability to talk. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I did a bad thing. I put a, a cough drop in my mouth just before coming up here, so I'm hoping not to rattle it on my teeth too much. Eleven months ago, we set out on this covenantal odyssey, and we followed Abraham's journey as God took him from pagan Ur to the promised land, to Yahweh's promised land. And God was planning to use this one man, this one family, Abraham's family, to undo, the curse of Abraham, or to, to undo the curse of Adam. Because God promised that through the innumerable descendants of Abraham would every family on the earth be blessed. And these great promises, they would, they would come to Abraham, they would come to Abraham's descendants through obedient faith. Abraham didn't have to work for them, he didn't have to achieve it, he didn't have to force a blessing out of God, no, he just had to believe. These were the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. God would provide curse undoing, abounding blessing, and Abraham would believe. Then in May, in the spring, we transitioned from Abraham's journey to David's rise, from shepherd boy to king of Israel, and it was a rise that was entirely orchestrated by God. And as I said last week, 
God gave David the throne and kept him on the throne totally in spite of David. David, what David earned was to be dethroned, but God was faithful. God kept him on that throne, not because of David, but because of the promises that God had made to David. Do you remember those promises? We saw them in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we see what we call the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now if you haven't realized it yet, We have followed the journey of Abraham and the rise of David and the covenants that God made them to land us at at Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We saw it again and again as we looked at those two men. Abraham and David pointed us towards Jesus. They were the shadows. They were the types. Like like when you see a sun shooting rays through a, a gray cloud sky. But now as we open Matthew, the shadows, the types, they clear. This is the dawning of the sun on a cloudless morning and we cannot help but see the unfiltered risen sun, the king of kings and our Emmanuel, now on these pages. And yet, before we dive into that greatness that we are about to behold here in Matthew, I need to spend a little bit of time talking about Matthew as a whole, as a book, its context, its themes, some of its noteworthy structures, because by understanding them, it will help us to unfold the gospel of Matthew. We need to understand its context before we understand what it says. So I want to, three things today, I want to introduce the glory and grace that is woven into this genealogy. So let's talk about who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Any guesses? It's a bright crowd. You know, there is a lot of scholarly debate and a lot of folks who say that Matthew, the disciple, didn't write it, but The church has agreed since the very beginning that it is Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, who wrote this gospel. And sometimes I think it's important that we state the obvious. Yes, Matthew wrote this book. Matthew penned this gospel likely in the late 50s, early 60s of the first century, somewhere from within Palestine or Syria. And there are a number of scholars, I think these are the ones who, who say Matthew did write it, But there are a number of scholars who think Matthew wrote this gospel from Antioch in Syria, which is where Paul's home church was. had a strong collection of Jews and Gentiles in that church. And the book of Galatians um, considers the church in Antioch heavily. It can't be proven that Matthew wrote from here, but I like the idea of it. I think it's compelling. Now, like all the other disciples, Jesus called Matthew. He called him out of an old life, out of an old way of doing things. And in his old life, Matthew, also known as Levi, was a tax collector. So he collected Jewish taxes to give to the Romans. 
Now, we're going to explore what that means later on in the book. It was not a good thing, for sure. But what it does mean, which is important for us today, is that Matthew was an educated man. He had some sort of education, and we will see very quickly in Matthew chapter 1 that not only was he educated, but he was incredibly intelligent. He had a deep, profound knowledge about the Jewish faith and the Jewish scriptures. In fact, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he wrote it primarily for a Jewish audience. This book is written for a Jewish audience, and there are copious references and quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. And so we see that he is assuming that the readers of this book have a profound knowledge of the Old Testament, of the Jewish scriptures. Thus, Matthew was, main, his main audience was Jewish. And it's likely, even though his main audience was Jewish, they were not picking up everything that Matthew was putting down. There are tons of allusions to the Old Testament here, and we'll see plenty in this passage today. It's going to be important, though, for us to remember as we go into Matthew that Matthew was written for us, but it was not written to us. So we need to continue to transport ourselves back to that original audience, back to that, that first century Jewish mind, and how would they have understood it? What, were the, um, what was the context that, that they were receiving this word within? You know, we have a very bad habit in the 21st century to take parts of the Bible, and especially the latter parts of the book of Matthew, to take them out of their original context and then just drop them in the 21st century. That's what we call bad exegesis. That's a bad way to study and understand the Bible. Again, Matthew was written for us, but it was not written to us. So with that in mind, with the first century Jewish reader in mind, let's consider a couple themes that dominate the gospel of Matthew. Of the four Gospels, Matthew pays particular attention to how the Old Testament prophecies and promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And again and again, Matthew's going to do this. He's going to be pointing to the fulfillment of Scripture in Christ. Foremost in his mind is that Jesus is the prophesied, long-awaited Messiah. More on that soon. Matthew He also wants the reader to know that the messianic blessing that that God had promised to the Jews, that the, the Jews longed for, they didn't recognize it. And so that blessing had passed on now, passed on to the followers of Jesus. This is another theme in Matthew's gospel. Christianity, or the church, is the true continuation of the Old Testament covenants. They are the enduring recipients of the promises and prophecies. You even see that in the very first sentence of Matthew. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That line goes through Christ and those who are now united to Christ. Matthew wants his readers to know that Christianity is the true Judaism. And remember, Paul says that the word of the gospel is an offense to the Jews. And that's because of the words I just said. Christianity is the true Judaism. I'm going to need a mute. (coughs) Sorry. So Matthew is 
He's deeply interested in all things Jewish, and he is a Jew himself, and he wants us to see that that Jesus is the hope of the nations, that Jew and Gentile are united in Christ, that there is no plan of salvation outside of Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, the only light, and all who reject him are lost. They have nothing. So there's no plan of salvation outside of Christ. And there's no people of God outside of the church. Additionally, Matthew is the only gospel writer to use the word church. He does it twice. Okay, so those are some of the themes in Matthew, some of the major dominating themes. Let's think about a couple of the structures, the major dominating structures of this book. It's important for us to know. Most significantly, Matthew arranges his gospel as a travel narrative. So it begins in Galilee. There are all these happenings around Galilee. And then there's the journey to Judea. And he's moving from Galilee in the north towards Judea in the south. And then the gospel ends with Jesus in Jerusalem. And in this gospel, Jesus first arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 21, towards the end of the book. Everything before that, it's a journey to get there. It's his travels, both theologically and geographically, to get to Jerusalem. But we know that Jesus didn't first get to Jerusalem at that time in history. No, there are hints within the Gospel of Matthew itself, and the other Gospels testify it, that Jesus went to Jerusalem much earlier in his life. I mean, he was circumcised there at eight days old. He got lost in the temple, well, his parents thought he did, when he was 12. But Matthew has him arriving there all the way in, in chapter 21 when he's 33 and about to be crucified. So it's important to remember that Matthew is not necessarily arranged chronologically. It is arranged thematically and theologically, especially as it concerns this travel narrative. In addition to this, I've broken down the Gospel of Matthew into five thematic shifts, or there seems to be an obvious shift in Jesus' ministry. So from chapters 1 to 7 is the revealing of the Messiah, both in the person and in his teaching, the nature of his kingdom. Chapter 8 to chapter 16, verse 20, are the demonstrations of the Messiah's power, whether it be through miracles or whether it be through powerful teachings. Chapter 16, verse 21, to chapter 22, verse 11, is when Jesus sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, and more specifically towards that cross. His mission is now to go to the cross. Then from chapter 21, verse 12, to the end of chapter 25, Jewish, Jesus and the Jewish religious system, religious leaders are, are colliding. Right? The religious leaders are are antagonistic to Jesus. They're rejecting him and trying to catch him in a trap. And Jesus is pronouncing judgments on them and on that system. And he's holding up underneath their scrutiny in a profound way. And then the rest of the book, from chapter 26 to the end, deals with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and concludes with his great commission. So as we come into a new section in Matthew, one of these five sections, you're going to see a thematic change here around the church, maybe in decor and some other things. And one more thing I want to point out about Matthew. There are five discourses in Matthew, five great discourses. These are awesome. 
First is the Sermon on the Mount, you should be familiar with, chapters 5 through 7. Then there is the Mission Discourse in chapter 10. There's the Parable Discourse in chapter 13. There's a Discourse on Relationships in chapter 18. And then finally, the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. All right, that's some good context. That's some good groundwork. I think we're ready to now dive into this great gospel. Again, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If we were to translate those first two words in Hebrew, literally, that open this book, it would read, the book of Genesis. It's right to say, wow, when you hear that. It's like what John was doing when he said, in the beginning was the word. So what would the Jewish mind, that ancient Jewish mind, think? They would immediately be transported to the book of Genesis, the one that's at the very beginning. And they would think about beginnings. They would think about creation. Matthew's doing something significant here, much greater than telling us merely about Jesus' genealogy. He's pointing us to creation. And with this genealogy, he points us, or within this genealogy, he's pointing us to creation for two reasons. He's using the genealogy to do this. First, he wants us to see that Jesus is the climax of creation. He is the greatest part of, of all creation. Not saying Jesus was created, but that he is the greatest, most preeminent thing in all creation, or one. The second thing, Matthew wants us to see that a new creation has begun in Jesus. So Jesus is preeminent in creation, and Jesus is beginning a new creation. As we progress through this genealogy, I think you'll see what I mean. Jesus, it says there in verse 1, is the son of Abraham. So it should be obvious, son does not mean literal son, it means descendant. God's plan for renewing what was falling and the promises of salvation, they were given to Abraham. For through Abraham would all the families of the earth be blessed, as I have said. But that means that through Abraham's seed, through his descendant, the curse of the fall would be undone. What Adam broke was going to be fixed through through Abraham's seed, And Jesus, the son of Abraham, is that seed. Salvation promised to Abraham realized in Jesus Christ. The peoples of the earth will be blessed through Jesus Christ. That's what what the, the gospel of Matthew wants us to see as we crack it, as we open it. It opens with showing us that because Jesus is Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendant, All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew closes the same way as Christ commissions his disciples to go to all the nations, all the peoples, so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus is the son of David. More than any other Gospel writer, Matthew uses the name David. He calls Jesus the son of David nine times. Again, more than any other gospel writer. In the Davidic covenant, as we rehearsed earlier, 
God promised David that one of his sons would reign forever, that his kingdom would be eternal, this one son. God promised a Messiah, an anointed one. And this anointed one, he would be the everlasting king of kings. He would be the one who would come and crush the head of the enemy, of Satan, this Messiah. So Jesus, the son of David, is that Messiah. This is the most prominent theme in Matthew. The kingdom of God has come in Christ, and Jesus is king. And so when you hear Jesus, the son of David, that messianic message should be ringing in your ears. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus declares at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew 4.17, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning it's right here. It is about to break upon you. And then when his ministry on earth concludes, he delivers that powerful kingly command. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. So Matthew's making it crystal clear. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the king that has brought heaven's kingdom, and we must worship and obey him. So that's just one sentence of Matthew. And I think you can see that it carries incredible covenantal gravity, transformational power, this one opening sentence. And then we get into the genealogy. And Eric did such a great job reading it that I don't think I need to repeat it. I do want to point out some significant things, though. First of all, the ancient Jewish person would especially be interested in genealogies. I mean, it was, it was part of their culture. They breathed it. They, they talked to one another about genealogies and who they descended from and who you descended from was incredibly important and for good or ill, it gave people status. In the Jewish mind, an authentic genealogy proved that Jesus was a real person. This isn't legend or fable or, or myth. No, this is a real person who has descended from real people. So this genealogy immediate reve immediately reveals that Jesus is grounded in actual history. He's not made up in somebody's mind or a collection of disciples' minds. No, he's real. In Matthew's genealogy here, this particular genealogy is concerned with the royal line. So after David, the names listed here would be the legal heirs to Israel's throne. So if there was a kingdom for many of them after the exile, these would be the heirs to that throne. It's not Jesus' biological line. If you want to see that, you'll have to go over to Luke chapter 3, where there's the genealogy most say is the lineage of Mary. In the same way that Matthew structures his gospel thematically and theologically, so is this genealogy structured. That's why we see a numerical symmetry in the genealogy. Look at verse 17 again. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to to the Christ, 14 generations. So if you insist upon reading the Bible literally or literalistically, while ignoring a symbolic understanding, then the, the genealogy of Jesus poses an, incredibly, an incredible challenge to you. Because there are not literally three sets of 14 generations in history. In fact, this is so easy to verify in the Old Testament. In that, in that set between David and the exile, there are at least three names missing, three kings Ahaziah, Josiah, and Amaziah, between Joram and Uzziah. So Joram is the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah, not the father. It works because just as Matthew can write that Jesus is the son of David, so can he write that Joram fathered Uzziah, though he was his great-great-grandfather. It's still about descent. So I'm saying there are not 14 generations, literally, in that span. There are other gaps, too. For example, there's about 900 to 1,000 years before, or between Abraham and David. Way too long for 14 generations. Think about David to the exile. That's about 400 years. And I've already said that there are three names missing from that list. So how many names are missing from the 1,000-year span list? So what I'm trying to show you is that Matthew did not write a precise, historically accurate genealogy because that was not his goal. Rather, he's arranging Jesus' lineage into three sets of 14 because he wants to communicate something so much bigger than precise historical accounts. To understand that, we need to transport ourselves once again into that first century Jewish mind where numbers have meaning beyond numerical value. Seven symbolizes the holiest things. Seven is the number of that which is complete or full or consummated. Any math wizards out there? Fourteen is two times seven. Twice seven. I'm sure some of you professors picked up on that. And once again, Matthew is communicating, this time he's doing it symbolically through numbers, that Jesus is the fullness, the fulfillment of Israel's history, and he who completed all He he is the completion of all human history. Jesus, this Christ. For the promised restoration and blessing that was made to to Abraham and the everlasting kingdom that was promised to David, they have reached their climax in Christ. He is the fullness. That's what this symbolic arrangement is about. And this is the testimony of Scripture, Colossians chapter 1. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church, head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what Matthew is saying as he arranges this genealogy into three sets of 14. Now, there are more clues embedded within the genealogy that point to Jesus as the fulfillment of history. Notice, apart from Mary, there are four women named in this genealogy. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah, also known as Bathsheba. Matthew didn't insert these names because he wanted to be inclusive. No, these four names, these four women are lightning bolts that illuminate God's salvific plan for the fullness of time. Each one of these women is very likely a Gentile. Do you realize that? Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba, very likely a Hittite. And not only are they Gentiles, but three of the four women have some very dubious relationship to the Messianic line. Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so that she would get pregnant. Rahab was a prostitute. Of course, we know what happened with Bathsheba. We just rehearsed this a, a little while ago in 2 Samuel. She and David committed adultery and bore, well, eventually they bore Solomon. Four women named in the genealogy, four Gentiles, three of which have problematic reputations. But by naming them, do you see what, what Matthew is doing? In Jesus... Jews and Gentiles are united. No matter how dirty the sinner, Jesus cleanses them from all their unrighteousness. And what grace it is that God has used prostitutes and adulterers and liars and a whole slew of terrible kings to birth the king of kings. From Galatians chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christ has broken down all of those dividing walls. doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, access to him is wide open. Access to God, salvation, to Eden is wide open in Christ. And our mess and all our failings, they don't frighten God. It does not thwart his plan. He uses the very worst of sinners to create glory. The story of grace is woven into this genealogy. Glory and grace and every fiber of Jesus' being, even his DNA, bursts with grace. Well, I shouldn't say DNA here. We'll get to that. There's one more detail to point out about this genealogy. This is that DNA bit. Look at verse 16. Joseph is not called the father of Jesus. He's called the husband of Mary. You know why that is, right? 
because Joseph didn't father Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll explore that more, and that gets explained to us in the very next passage of chapter 1. So Jesus is not the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. The son of God. And yet, Joseph adopts him as his own son. And I I feel like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this. The gospel is in that. Jesus was an adopted son. God was adopted by man so that man could be adopted by God. There is no greater mixture of humility and glory than that. How awesome. Again, back to Galatians chapter 4 this time. When the fullness of time had come, God was sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What does it mean to be an heir through God? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. If he has given you Christ, is there anything he would not withhold from you? But all things are yours now in Christ because he has given his one and only son. God was adopted by man so that man could be adopted by God. The gospel is a message of adoption and we see it even here as Matthew opens his gospel. (laughs) You know, when a new believer or is on fire from the Lord and they're all excited and they say to themselves, I'm going to read the whole Bible. Or maybe they say, I'm going to read the New Testament. And then they open up the New Testament and are confronted with, you you know that that happens. I've skipped over the genealogy, right? It's just a bunch of dusty names and I know what it means. You know, that's immaturity though. Today, I hope that your understanding has matured. I hope you never look at this genealogy the same way again. It's far from boring. This list of names bursts with gospel glory and grace, and it tells us that the fullness of time has come because Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, has entered human history. He has placed himself inside of it, becoming one of us. Adopted by us, that we might be adopted by him. Matthew opens his gospel wanting us to see that the kingdom of heaven has dawned upon the earth. It has come. And now, wretched sinners far from the promises of God, whether they be Jew or Gentile, Christ brings near that we could be adopted into the family of God to be his own sons and daughters, no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer slaves. Sons and daughters, the curse, the curse is being undone and all things are being made new. For behold, our eyes have seen the King and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Father, we thank you for this great word.
And even out of something that can seem so boring, you, you find a way to burst glory out of it. Awesome realities. It's only boring because our eyes are so clouded. Lord, may you uncloud our eyes more and more that we might see the glories of your grace surrounding us all of the time, living within us as you have given us your spirit, as you have brought us into your family. The glories of your grace in the faces of the redeemed right next to us in these chairs. And as we continue in the gospel of Matthew for the next year and a half, oh, may we be thrilled by the glories of grace we will find there. I thank you for this people, for this time, and for your work in our midst. It's in Christ's name I pray it. Amen.